Hello everyone, welcome to the New Humanist Podcast. I'm Damien and this is episode 19 and the fifth of part three. The topic for today is the apparent connection between atheism and leftism. Continuing the theme for part three, which is the critique of secular humanism, which basically seeks to understand the affinity or the tendency amongst those who espouse a secular, that is to say a godless version of humanism, and their tendency to align with left-wing political positions. Before I start, it's worth mentioning, I mean, so far I've stayed away from politics. At least, I've tried not to overtly engage political questions as it pertains to the question of, well, God, life, religion, humanity, and human well-being, which has been the main focus of this podcast. At least an underlying one with respect to the question of human well-being, which is the main position which I seek to affirm via the view of humanism. Now, the political question is always there. It's always hanging over our head. I guess, especially in the world today, it's very difficult to get away from the political, right? I guess to be apolitical, to, to hold a non-political view, I guess is almost impossible in the world today, especially at a time, or maybe this is how it has always been. Culture and politics are so intertwined. It's very difficult to hold a position on culture and then to somehow say that one is not political, or one does not have political views that are associated with it. Now, so far, I have not tried to affirm, or at least not tried to disaffirm a certain political view. However, it may have been apparent, or it would be apparent, I think, for the listener by now, that my views tend to align in a certain way. That is to say, my views have been essentially pro-market, right? I've spoken about the importance of work, of, of individualism, I guess, Certainly the importance of taking responsibility for your life, working, producing something, being creative, being driven. All these things, broadly speaking, comes under a certain, I want to say a self-sufficiency framework, although that is not complete. But essentially the idea is that you need to take control of your life. You need to produce something of value. You need to become something or someone who can value add to society, right? And hence be rewarded for it. Now that broadly works into a certain framework, socioeconomically speaking which is not, let's say, collectivist, right? That is to say, you're not just one cog in a huge hole. Everyone just acting like automatons working for the collective good, so to speak. There's an individual imperative, which was connected to the masses, to the holes, let's say, still is driven by individual or individualist concerns. Now, of course, you can work that out in terms of how it manifests politically, but you get an idea of where I stand on these issues. I mean, safe to say I'm not in the collectivist camp. Be that as it may, so far I've tried not to openly affirm or disaffirm a political position, right? I mean, in context of, say, European or Western politics, mainly this comes down to the question of, do you support the left or the right? Which works out differently in accordance with the political parties in the respective countries. So in the UK, we have the Conservatives versus the Labour, I think. And in the United States, of course, the Democrats versus the Republicans, broadly speaking. And of course, this logic um, of the left versus the right uh, plays out across much of the world, really. I don't think any country which has a representative system of government has a left versus right framework. Now, with respect to the term leftism, okay, which I think is worth elucidating a bit, that the term carries with itself a certain degree of, let's say, a certain connotation. And I would argue a negative, and in some respects, but necessarily so. When one speaks of leftism, right, I think we need to sort of get the politics of this out of the way, not exhaustively, but just to get, get a general idea. The term left 
tends to get confused with the word liberal. That is to say one has a liberal or open position on views and ideas. Essentially, the term liberalism at one level means openness to new things, openness to new ideas, openness to new changes and innovation, which are supposedly, or they are believed to be, for the betterment of society. Right? They're supposed to advance the collective and the individual's well-being. Okay, so they're supportive. It's like saying you're doing something that's not working, so you consider new avenues, new possibilities. You adopt new methods, okay? And hence, by doing so, by applying those new techniques, by opening yourself up to new ideas, you're able to reach better outcomes, work towards better solutions, embrace positions which are more inclusive, like, for example, giving people the right to vote, one could say, right? Back in the day, not everyone could vote, some people could vote. But then uh, the idea of suffrage was expanded to include more and more groups. And that's, let's say, a liberal position. Of course, you can argue against that, saying, well, you know, enfranchising everyone is not the best idea. Maybe, okay, I mean, like, for example, some people who don't own property and they can still vote on people who own property. I mean, again, you can have your opinions. I'm not going to get into what is right or wrong about these ideas. But the point is the term liberalism, right, or being liberal, tends to correspond to openness to new ideas and new positions. It's supposed to be conservative. It's about conserving. It's about preserving what is already there. And hence, these people are viewed as those who are less receptive to change, who are not open to the idea of change. Now, this is very simplistic, and I think in many ways it's actually quite reductive. It doesn't really engage the, the nuances, which I think are very important. I mean, the term conservatism, for example, is not just about conserving. It's about conserving what is good whilst making changes where necessary. That's a more proper idea of conservatism. I mean, of course, depends on who you're talking to. Many kinds of conservatism are there. That's another problem. The term conservative, the term liberal, very broad. I mean, many kinds of conservatisms, in case people do not. But what I can understand, there, paleoconservatism, neoconservatism. Heck, there's even something called liberal conservatism. I think this is something you find in places like Latin America, where right-wing parties are considered liberal, vis-a-vis -vis their conservative, if that makes sense. But of course, in the Western world, liberal parties are on the left, right? And that itself is a sort of a modification of leftist political views, which are more stringent, which are more ideological, okay? more radical, let's say. And of course, the word liberal itself has many applications and many ways of understanding the word liberal, right? I mean, of course, we have proper liberalism, which is so ambiguous. I don't think it can be grounded. That's one of the problems we have. Liberalism vis-a-vis. -vis. We have uh, classical liberalism, neoliberalism. Right, uh, and uh, I think I've already mentioned liberal conservatism. As a listener, I can understand there are many applications, many ways in which these terms manifest themselves, and the politics that they give rise to, kind of policymaking that they affirm or disaffirm. It's very complicated, right? I mean, if you try to look at it broadly within an ideological spectrum, I mean, these things move, tilt, veer to one side or the other, more or less. It's difficult to really ground yourself, although you can. If you look at it from a very firm policy-centered perspective, you say, okay, what kind of policy position would I affirm? Then we may be able to get somewhere. The point is, when it comes to the question of human well-being, both the left and the right tend to differ when it comes to a certain fundamental principle. That is, is that the people on the left tend to view the government as important, whereas people on the, on the right tend to view the government more suspiciously. Right? That's basically the idea. That entails, or in turn, gives rise to many realities. More individualism on the right, more collectivism on the left, broadly. A greater belief in the role of the state on the left, the greater belief in the need for non-state-based institutions like families, churches, right, communities, other kinds of fellowships. One that was spoken about in 
I think his name is Alex de Tocqueville. I'm sure I'm pronouncing it incorrectly. Alex Tocqueville, French uh, thinker, and his book, uh, Democracy in America, where he spoke about voluntary associations, right? How people can come together and they find a common issue or problem and they sort of organize themselves around it and try to find resolutions, right? They don't appeal to the state, but rather people themselves form their own organizing bodies, own representative institutions at the local level, at a more decentralized level, and they proceed ahead to do good things, right? To work collectively, but not in a collectivist way. That is to say, they don't give rise to the kind of collectivist status institutions. Again, I'm, I'm speaking very generally, guys. The idea is that the idea of voluntary associations essentially takes the place of a state-based, centrally directed uh, command apparatus. Right? The point being that people on the left view the government as an institution, as an entity, as something we need to be a part of, right? Something that emerges and then it exists and it has a role to play. Whereas people on the right view other institutions working alongside government also in a way that is equally important. At the same time, people on the right are from the individual, the individual person. It's not just about where do you stand with respect to the whole, but where do you stand as a person? Who are you, right? What is your life? What is the measure of your worth? What can you bring to the table, okay? That's, again, it's a broad spectrum, right? I mean, if you go to the extreme left, you know, communist utopianism, there is no individual. The whole community itself acts like a single mind, almost like, you know, people are just there to empower the collective good, and that in itself gives rise to a collective societal organization, like quasi-utopian collectivist framework. And that's somehow natural or logical, right? But we can see the stages from, from extreme communism to radical socialism to socialism to social democratic system, like what we have in Scandinavian countries, some Scandinavian countries. And we come closer towards a sort of a social social market economies, I think, probably in between. My point is, guys, it's a broad spectrum, right? The question is, where do you stand along those lines? Now, with this debate, this particular debate on humanism, right, my focus has been on question of human well-being, critically in the here and now, okay? I'm not talking much about life after that. Now, that is interesting because I am nonetheless affirming, critically, a God-centered humanism. That is to say, I'm not rejecting the existence of God. I'm not rejecting the importance not only of God, but of religion, because religion gives us the framework, a point which I argued before. We need religion. Without the religious system, without a, a place of worship, without a Christian or religious congregation of your choosing, it could be anything. It could be Christian, it could be Jewish, it could be Islamic. That's not important, although I, from a Christian worldview, it gives us the framework. It gives us a structure under which, within which we can operate and hence bring God into our life. You know, you can say, oh, well, why do we need a church? You know, you know deeper questions. But to give you one simple example, or if you believe in God, of course, God is everywhere, but we need the structure, we need the system, and of course, we need to be amongst others who are from the same belief. Now, of course, the seculars will say, well, you're just there to conform. It's conformity to uniformity. Everyone is agreeing on the same thing, so it gives you a basis to, to affirm and reinforce yourself. Okay, that works both ways. I mean, you can say the same thing about secular organizations, but the point being, the religious dimension, fundamentally, in my view, is important to the question of human well-being. That is the underlying assertion, okay? That is a starting point, interestingly enough, of many conservative, right? Many, lack of a better word, right-wing positions, right? Not the fascistic one, which is the extreme right. But the view is that the need for individual assertion to take care of yourself, to be able to express yourself, to be able to have your views and worldviews represented, that essentially is a, a sort of a center-right position. I mean, going back to America, for America is a good example here. America's founding was driven by many factors, but one of the key factors here, there are many, but one of the key elements was the need for spiritual independence. A lot of Europeans were being persecuted in their countries for holding the wrong Christian belief. So if you're like a Protestant and you're in a Catholic country or you're having some trouble, or if you're a Protestant in a certain kind of 
a Protestant culture, right, which don't allow the certain kind of spiritual expression that your kind of spirituality demanded or, or entailed, you will be in trouble. So it meant that you had to leave your country. In America, it was a free world. You can go there, you can establish yourself, build your own followership, and, and make it a basis for your own religious uh, community. America's uh, forming, for example, is very much Christian, right, in its own uh, political character. I just say the states, like the Eastern Boer, right, the first 13 colonies and so on, each of them had their own Christian character, okay? And they were exclusionary, right, in some ways. And that's maybe not a good thing, but for the Puritans and so on is another example. And my point is that the religious character of America, as an example, is predicated on the idea of self-assertion. But in this case, it is self-assertion at a spiritual level. Of course, the economic and the political, of course, these things come together. But at a deeper level, at one level, the spiritual was pertinent. And that, in turn, gave rise to an independent spirit, which naturally, I would say, viewed the state, viewed the government as oppressive. Understand this, folks. In Europe, a lot of the Christians were coming under fire from their, well, let's say, the opposition, people in the other Christian denomination. Let's say if you're a Calvinist in Catholic Italy. I mean, this is a hypothetical. This is probably not the best example, but you're going to have some trouble there, right? Or if you're a Protestant uh, German in, uh, in, in southern Germany, right, in Bavaria, Austria, you, know, you might run into some trouble, so you're probably better off moving to the north or maybe moving to America altogether and then, you know, setting up shop there with your own Christian community, if that makes sense, right? The point is that a lot of the times that the state in European countries, the state had a religion, right? So the separation between state and church was not very clear. So a Protestant Germany was Protestant, not only as a religious institution, not only in terms of religious character, but also at the state level, okay? Calvinism in France had a similar undertone. Certainly in England, Anglicanism was the state religion. So if you're a Catholic there, you're in trouble. It's very much so in Ireland with Roman Catholicism. So the state and the church were intertwined. So people couldn't really you know, be free if they want to have their own faith. And faith affects many aspects of your life. Religion is very critical, right? And so moving to America was the right choice, where you can go there, you can form your own community, or you can join your own community, and you can take things from there. Now, I'm saying this, folks, just to sort of lay the groundwork for the suspicion that people have when it comes to the state. This is especially true in America, but it broadly affects all parties when it comes to the right. That is to say, the state is viewed suspiciously as a matter of principle. Now, this is important to consider. It's not that the state is bad, it's not that the government is evil, but rather the government's ability to affect or our government's desire to get involved in the lives of its populace is viewed with a degree of suspicion. Now, critically, folks, now if, if you study the role of governments, certainly from an economic or socioeconomic standpoint, right, even if you do, do business, I think you probably have not. Governments, no matter what part of the world they're from, whether it's communist China or supposedly capitalist America, right, or American capitalism is a bit all over the place, actually. But um, the principle is this. Governments, no matter where, play a small or rather are meant to play a small but critical role. So, for example, governments across the world are critical, essentially, when it comes to security. It's local government and critically national security when it comes to protecting your country against foreign invaders. That's really the primary role of the government, provide security. And also, of course, to protect the country from other kinds of threats like pathogens, viruses, and so on, right? In my drift. Many kinds of threats the government has to protect because I think in economics, it comes down to things like public goods, right? Private sector cannot provide public goods because it's the ability to make profits are limited and, and there are many factors, economic part of it which I will not get into here. But the point being that the governments are important. They play a critical, small but critical role on national security, which is defense essentially, on infrastructure like transportation, waterways, seaways, ports, seaports. You can't expect the private companies to build them. They could, I guess, in a way, but the incentives are not great. And also in healthcare, which is not complicated. 
sector. I know some people on the right not cool with it, especially the extent in which the government gets involved in healthcare, but certainly at the level of as a facilitative role. I think in economics, we call it merit goods. The government provides kind of support for things like healthcare, for education, and so on, just to supplement areas where there are inadequacies, where private supply is lower. Now, I don't want to say that it's good or bad. It comes down to the position. But the point is that the government has a role to play, importantly, and also critically in areas like a monetary policy. Although that is very much open for debate as well, because certain kind of right-wing people, let's say libertarians, their view of government's involvement in the role of money is very critical, very cynical, right? Especially the Austrian economic people, really critical of government. Austrians are all on the political, then the right end of the spectrum, although their views on economics tend to trump everything else, right? Because they're not very much into culture on issues like, you know, say abortion, for example, where people on the right traditionally are very strong. Guys, now listen, if you're the listener, you're wondering, okay, what is he talking about? This podcast is about humanism. This is about human well-being. This is about the importance of empowering the person. This is about looking at religion, which is problematic. It is not helpful to the human condition, more or less, at least in its simplistic application, right? whether it's over-preoccupation with life after death, over-preoccupation with morality, the unhealthy focus on sex, which I've spoken about a bit, the lack of hope in the Christian message, for example. Again, critically, the example of Jesus Christ. I tell you guys, just to give you an example, just today I went to church. Oh, for a long time, I went to church. Well, I went on Christmas Day, right? But my point is, just went to church on a day. I just see how it is. And I didn't like it. It's terrible. Right outside, you have this crucifix of Jesus Christ hanging there, bloody. He's a bloody mess. And he's there in front of the... And we're supposed to worship this guy, right? And this is our God, for example. Now, again, of course, there's more to it. But there has to be more to this. There has to be more hope. So to take nothing away from my critique of religion, which is only going to get stronger, rest assured, but we need to engage the question of leftism, or rather the secular view of humanism, which works into leftism, right? That is a cause of concern for those of us who value, who view human well-being, I would say as an end in itself. I mean, there's nothing more important than human well-being. There's nothing more important than making sure that everyone in the world, and I mean everyone, at least with the best of our ability, leads a good life where they have access to opportunities, where they have good health care, good education, right? Where they are able to provide for themselves, where they can work, where they can grow, where they can rise up, right? where they can build a life for themselves. And that opportunity needs to be given to everyone so they can lead a full life, to increase lifespan, to increase health span, something I come across, right? It's about letting people grow and lead a good life, but also a healthy life. You know, it's not like putting people off to retirement and it means they hit 60 or 70 and then their life goes to pieces. No, it's about giving people the opportunity to live a full life. This is what I affirm within a humanistic position. However, the problem is, when it comes to secular humanism, unfortunately, it seems to me the tilt is overtly towards the state, to view the state as the be-all and end-all, as the guardian of human well-being, as the sole engine right, of human progress. That is the place in which the human betterment initiative is to find its culmination or is to find its resolution. And this, for me, is a cause of concern. We view the state as the answer to our problems. We view the state as the driver of human progress. We view the state, right, as the engine of a human betterment. What happens to the individual? What happens to the question of human well-being at the personal level? What happens to the question of human progress as it pertains to the uniqueness of every individual? What happens to the question of human life as it pertains to our own personal, individual, variegated, specific, particularistic urges and aspirations. I mean, think about this for a second. A lot of the times these, let's say these oppressed groups, right? I mean, I don't mean that cynically, but 
I think we know, like, and I don't want to name names here, but people who say, oh, we've been oppressed, we are under pressure. They invariably go to the government and say, we need to be represented, we need to be empowered, we need to be taken care of, essentially, right? But what happens is a state gets involved in, quote-unquote, representing them, in empowering them, in supporting them, but it takes a forceful stance, almost, to a point where someone else gets excluded. Correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the things I've noticed increasingly, say, in popular culture, certainly in the Anglo-American sphere, is it feminists, for example? Some of you may know the feminism is very popular in the Western world, certainly six, seven years now. And feminism is very popular in the Western world. But now, increasingly, the transgender movement is becoming more popular, right? And the transgender movement is very much state-favored. The government, certainly in Anglo-Saxon countries, are supporting them. We have to empower trans people, support them. Fine, again, I have nothing against that. I have nothing against them as individuals. But it seems that the feminists now are suffering a bit. It seems like they are coming under fire. Again, I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, if the listeners observing this, and it's almost like one party is being represented to the exclusion of someone else. The question of picking sides, you're trying to represent someone, and then someone else is, if we talk about feminism as a whole, my point is, it's not a concern about whose side I'm on. I'm not, I'm not saying the feminists are good, or the trans people are bad, or the trans people are good, and the feminists are bad. My question is, human well-being is no longer a question of the individual. It's a question of the collective, right? It is trans people, it's feminists, right? or feminists who are more pro-trans and feminists who are more, let's say, biologically pro-female, right? Because feminism is a bit complicated. There are people who say, okay, it's about the woman, it's about the girl, it's about the female, right? The one who is biologically female, we need to take care of them, as opposed to now, there's other factions which say, oh no, it's feminism means anyone who wants to be a woman, right? I don't want to pick a side on that saying who's right or wrong. The problem is that it's overtly collectivist, okay? It's no longer about the person, it's no longer about the individual. People are operating under why I'm a feminist or I'm a trans person or whatever. And this doesn't really help the individual on what are their unique concerns. And this is something the listener needs to think about. Whenever the state gets involved, it takes sides. It picks winners and losers, so to speak. It picks, okay, we need to take care of them. We need to uplift them. We need to... And this, for me, is a problem. One of many problems that we have. Now, when it comes to the humanistic people, right, the secular humanists, these guys are singular in their focus and in their opposition to faith, in the opposition to God, in the opposition to religion. And they don't see anything that's good about it. They don't see anything good coming from it. And here I would encourage the listener to listen to the views of people like Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, right? And even secular thinkers who are, let's say, secular philosophers like Stephen Pinnaker and so on. These people, all of them, are very critical of religion. They view religion as completely problematic. There's nothing good about religion. It has nothing good to offer humanity. It has nothing positive to bring to the human experience. Hence, their marginalization of religion, all that it represents, means that they invariably tilt, invariably come to adore, come to embrace, and dare I say, come to worship the state. Government becomes a replacement, not only as an entity which is there to provide you know, basic service like security, maybe health, you can say, certainly in the UK, that's true, and other social and public goods, which are necessary, which the private sector cannot compete in, which the private sector cannot provide. But they tend to view the state as a be-all and end-all. The state is now a basis of identity. The state is going to be, I don't know, their source of worship. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys. And this is something I've observed, and this is something I want to speak about more going forward. So now that we've opened up the political debate here, I guess there's no turning back now, is it? One thing I've noticed about these people now that I've mentioned their names, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, I've already spoken about a few of them, Chris Evans is, of course, no longer with us, sadly. Uh, Stephen Pinnaker and Daniel Dennett. These guys, all of them, you watch these people. If you're on Twitter, you're encouraged to look these people up on Twitter and what they're tweeting about. They're all very anti-President Trump. This is very interesting, okay? 
I mean, I'll tell you the language, the expression, the vitriol, if I may use that word, that comes out of it, okay, in relation to the US president, it's so direct, it's so critical, it's so dismissive. But now, again, I'm not taking a political position. Frankly, I'm not really concerned, you know, whether it's Republican or Democrat. Of course, I think someone is better than the other. I do have my sympathies, let me just say that, but not loyalties per se. But it's not a question about hating someone, okay? And what I sense here, these prominent new atheists and secular thinkers, is that they seem to hate the President of the United States. Not only him as a person, but all that he represents. Now, of course, in America, as we know, the U.S. presidentially Republicans generally tend to have a lot of support from evangelical Christians. And I think Christians in general, certainly Roman Catholics, it seems certainly the recent election that, that concluded in November, a lot of Catholics had come out in support of the U.S. president, I think mainly for pro-life reasons. And you can take it all together. The atheist people are in opposition based on these four individuals that I've just mentioned, Dawkins, Harris, Dennett, and Pinnaker is that they hate the president, they hate what he represents. About a deeper level, what that really means is they view, and this is my, this is a speculative point, guys, you can, maybe we can work, work on this going forward, is that they feel angry that the president of the United States, or rather the office of the president of the United States, is held by a person of faith. Think about that for a second. It's not just the president of the United States is a bad person, but rather the person in office is not, is not an atheist, is not a Darwinist, it's not someone who views that life is nihilistic. That science, now I had to be careful when I say this, but I think there was a president before who said that uh, the science will restore to its authority or that the notion of believing in science, that, that's another <laughs> statement which I will not get into now. And my point is, guys, the overt fascination with the state because they have nothing else to hold on to, right? They have no God, they have no religion, they have no church. So the state becomes important, it becomes too important. And this is my concern, this is my problem with leftism. Leftism means the adoration of the state, it is the worship of the state. It is the replacement of God with the state. Now, this is not explicit. It doesn't follow logically, or maybe it does. Certainly in all these communist countries in Asia, certainly in the Soviet Union, I think, that was the case where religion is regulated, or in many ways it was delegitimized, and the state took over everything. My point is that here, certainly in the Anglo-American sphere, what we have is the worship of the state that is following logically owing to the negation of the spiritual, owing to the absence of the church, owing to the absence of God has nothing to fall back on. Hence, governments are so important, they have to have control of the state. This notion this the separation of state from church. When we say the separation of state from church, it is not a question about keeping the state atheistic. See, ironically, that itself is a political position, which I'll argue going forward. The separation of state from church means the state holds a neutral position on these issues, not a, a purposefully atheistic or a purposefully theistic position. That's a topic for another time, but my point is, the leftist mindset, one that rejects God, without saying inevitably, comes to view the state as a be-all and end-all. And it does so, in my view, for problematic reasons. State is something that they lay claim to. Oh, it's ours. The government is how we change the world. The government is how we drive human progress. It's like these people, I mean, if I may say so, who can't do it on their own, who cannot build a good successful career in business or in entrepreneurship, in art, in music, in, in entertainment. They all jump the gun or rather jump ship to the government, right? You know, like these parasitic people, these barnacles, they cling on to the state and they try to build their life around it. I'm being very cynical, I guess, in a way. But my point is that to view the state as the engine of progress, to view the state as the engine of development, to view the state as the engine of human upliftment, which is nothing actually, because in the state, you're all equal, right? I mean, that's the whole point. The state is just, it's an equalization mechanism, right? It doesn't really, unless you're holding high office, that's a separate issue. But my point is, guys, the rejection of God with respect to the question of human well-being and betterment inevitably pulls people towards the state, as a state as the center of human life. 
It's not the family. It's not the community. It's not your church. It's not your own little army, right? Which you can build, which by the way, it's happening a lot now with social media. I mean, I've been following a number of people recently on Instagram, on YouTube. They have their own thing going on and they, a lot of them are profitable businesses or profitable ventures. And I'm guessing, if you ask me, a lot of those guys will be voting for a conservative or a right-wing political party because it's it fits well with their philosophy because they're self-made well, they're self-made men, right? From back in the day, or women. Girls are doing very well too. I mean, they're making a lot of money on Instagram and YouTube and so on, like, you know, these fashion people, right? They promote these goods. My point is, guys, um, the left-right question is very complicated. It's a bit ambiguous in some ways. But what is clear is that people of faith, people who are from God as a reality, God as important, tend to view the state with a degree of suspicion. And also with a degree of, how can I say, the lack of desperation when it comes to the state. People on the left, they have nothing else to hold on to. Okay, they maybe have families and so on, but government is the be-all and end-all. They want to hold on to it so desperate. In the moment, I guess, in the, in the case of the President of the United States now, President Trump, the moment you have some Christian evangelical or Christian church-supported person, right, like the President of the United States, they're all up in arms because you know, they don't have one of their people controlling one of their own institutions. That's a speculative point. I cannot sustain that. I'm just putting it out there for the listener to consider. But the point is, we need both. We need governments. We need the service of public servants. We need their help. We need their leadership. No question. And they provide a critical role when it comes to security, health, safety, uh, even education, for example. And but at the same time, the private sector is important. The question is, does your spiritual affinity affect these outcomes, affect your position on these realities? And the answer is yes. If you're atheistic and secular, you're more likely to view the state as a be-all and end-all. If you're a person of faith, then you have other things going on, like the church, and the family and extended community, which I think comes naturally. And of course, our private sphere, right? People on the right are not just these religious fanatics, right? A lot of people on the on the right end of the political spectrum are also individualists, right? They're like the Iron Rand people, okay? Although they themselves are atheists. That, that's another story. We'll get into Iron Rand later. But the point is that leftism and secular humanism are connected, okay? And I think this is something that the listener needs to consider, okay? And a lot of the, the fascination with the state is driven partly by a dislike or even hate of God, of religion, of faith, of, of a society that's built on a spiritual heritage. And in this case, now we'll let the listener decide for him or herself. Listen to what these people are saying. Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, Stephen Pinnaker. These are the people who are very popular. I'm not trying to put them down. You will have a look and decide for yourself. Look at the language. Look at the rhetoric. Look at the underlying sentiment. There's something else afoot here. There's something else going on besides their, you know, let's say, criticism of the U.S. president. Everyone does that, by the way. Almost everyone. But... There's something else going on here, right? There's something else afoot. And that is something that does concern me. And this is something I will look into going forward. Guys, there we are. Leftism, secular humanism. Doesn't sit well for me. Doesn't sound well, right? Doesn't sound good from where I stand. Let's see. Let's see where this leads us. All right, folks, this is the New Humanist Podcast. I'm Damien. This is episode 19, the fifth of part three. And see you guys next time.